Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. Very excited because I have somebody here whose last name is not Jew. It's Tracy Christian. And uh, I've never interviewed anybody with the last name Christian. You know, whenever I hear somebody with the last name Christian, automatically I just say to myself, not Jewish. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just, you know, my name's Barry Katz. I always said to my mom, why didn't you just name me Jew Israel? But instead, I'm here with Tracy Christian. And I, ha- I, I, at first, before I start, I want to say that I thank you guys so much for all the responses, the emails. It's, it's, it's insanity how wonderful uh, everybody is who, who has been uh, reaching me. So when I, I'm sitting here and, and, and Tracy, uh, is involved in a lot of different businesses, but one of the businesses she's involved in is, is music. And for me, as a young boy growing up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is an Indian word, which means Jews live here, a constant theme that's going on here. Um, and it was an all-white area. And for those of you who may not be watching and listening, whatever, uh, I'm sitting across from a woman of color. Uh, and so when I grew up, it's like literally I was a sheltered person. I never I never was around anybody who maybe there was a foreign exchange program or maybe an inner city program. And you know what happened is back then in the 70s, you'd go to the cafeteria in your school and it was the weirdest thing. It's like there'd be a sea of white people 
and then there'd be one table with all the black kids in it. And I was the, you know, dummy who would always go up there. Hey, what's up, guys? It's me. You want to share some applesauce? No? Okay, I'll be over here. But uh, I, I just always felt this kindred spirit to this world, this, this urban world, even before I, I presumed that there was an urban world. And as I was growing up, my dad passed away when I was four. And I used to, like, explore in my basement, like, you know, what was happening down there, what he was a part of. And and I remember I pried open this old rusty cabinet, file cabinet. You know, the, the old kind of file cabinet that stood up with the five drawers and you'd pull out the drawer and it'd come out like, you know, three feet. And you'd think, how does this file cabinet not tumble on top of me. And I would pry open every rusty drawer and there was nothing in it. And I finally got to the last drawer and pried it open. And it was like 50 albums, all musty albums. And I'm looking through the albums and something very strange was happening as I was looking through each album. Shirley Bassey, Dinah Washington, The Supremes, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole. And I'm thinking to myself, was my dad black? Because it's 19, whatever, 60, maybe 71, maybe it's 1971 or whatever it is, 72. And there's no one, there's no, I haven't even, the only person who's black in my life is the woman who comes and helps us clean our house. His name was Shirley. And so I really had no concept of what. And so I went to find some kind of a record player. But the record player we had was this huge console thing that was like the size of like Rhode Island. And you could never move it. And it was all water damaged. And so I just. Oh. So I started collecting S&H green stamps, which for those of you who are old enough to know, these are things when you went to a supermarket for every dollar you would spend, you would get a green stamp and you would paste it in these books. And if you filled up these books, you could go and redeem them for uh, cash and prizes. And I found that they had a record player, one of those fold down record players that you kind of hold had the speakers on both sides. And I got that with several uh, books that I put together and I started playing the music. And I love the music, you know, Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, uh, Louis Armstrong, what, what a wonderful world. Actually, you know, here you're sitting around, you're 11 years old, you're an 11 year old white guy in your living room in Long Meadow and you're actually crying when you're listening to A Wonderful World or, or just the Supremes and the energy that was coming behind it. And, and uh, weirdly enough, there were three albums in that group from white artists uh, Bob Newhart, The Button-Down Mind, The Smothers Brothers, Crabs Walk Sideways and Lobsters Walk Straight, and Jonathan Winters' Comedy and Tragedy. And as much as I listened to the music, I never, I had the rhythm of a furnace. You know, I just really, you know, I'm dancing around the living room. I'm looking like a gay autistic child as I'm trying to get into this music. And I really didn't, I, I liked it and I understood it and it meant something to me and I was attracted to it, but the comedy spoke to me and um, 
I wonder if the albums had been Bill Cosby or Paul Mooney or Moms Mabley or Dick Gregory, if it would have been different. I, I don't know. But I got into comedy and I really rallied around comedy and it became my lane. And then something happened to me that made me realize what I had to do as a person and what every artist I represented needed to do to get to the next level. Like I said, there was a, a this thing about being around the urban world that meant something to me. I used to go up to Harlem to the Uptown Comedy Club and I was the only white person there. I looked like a line of cocaine on a black album cover. And I would watch all these artists like Tracy Morgan, who I eventually represented, and, and I just was like so excited by it. And I, I had no fear. I guess I had no fear because I never was exposed to any kind of world or anything bad that had happened. And I was kind of a big guy and nobody messed with me. But I, I just, I loved, I loved the world because it was honest it was honest comedy. It wasn't, you know, a white comedian a lot of times will do comedy where the material's more like, you know, this happened to me and it's more imaginative. Granted, there's the Seinfelds that do routines that are, you know, observational, but the some great ones that I love, like the first comedian I ever saw, Stephen Wright, he's doing material that's fantasy. It's beautiful and it's well written. It's exciting to know that a guy can write a joke like I, you know, I worked at a factory that produced fire hydrants. I couldn't park anywhere near the place. I mean, that that to me is brilliant. But again, it's fantasy and it's it's entertaining and it's smart. But the black comedians had an honest comedy. And you go to a, a, a black comedy club. For those of you who don't know, it's like you go to a white comedy club. If you see a standing ovation in a white comedy club, it's a fucking miracle. I mean, it's like white audiences are like, they just, they have no uh, highs, they have no lows. I'm not talking about theater shows. I'm talking about comedy club shows. Normally they have like one lane. It's 65 miles an hour down the lane. You go to a black comedy club, if they don't like you, you're booed off the fucking stage. And if they love you, they're dancing around the aisles, high-fiving each other, doing chest bumps, you know, like slapping each other, like just losing their fucking minds and giving you a standing ovation when you end, saying, you are fucking amazing. And so I, you know, being in both worlds, I really, you know, it was hard for me in the white comedy clubs to see how who could ever move anybody like that? And if they could, I knew they were somebody special. But to find them and to know about what artists needed to do, including the the, the African-American comedians. So it was a show that meant a lot to me that aired after Saturday Night Live in New York. It was a syndicated show called Showtime at the Apollo, a very famous show. And I used to... Uh, I used to get those VHS tapes 
that you know the ones where you had the two hour speed for best speed the four hour speed for the medium speed and the six hour speed shitty speed but you could record everything and and my vcr obviously you could program a vcr but i you know was functionally a special needs person and i was reduced to a 400 dollar clock in my living room so right before i left for the night i would pop in the vhs tape and i would press record and when I came back home at like four in the morning, I would watch Showtime at the Apollo. So the first time I watched it, first time, I get home and Paul Rodriguez is guest hosting and he introduces something that I have no idea who anybody is because I don't really follow me. I'm not really into music. And this is ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jennifer Holliday. And Jennifer Holliday comes out, and it's a woman who, I don't know if it's a weave, if she's straightened her hair. Uh, she's wearing a dress that appears to be four sizes too small. She's wearing, this is pre-Spanx, so she's wearing some kind of thing that's putting it all together. Literally, I, I imagine when she took off her dress that night, it could have possibly been like an airplane raft in an emergency. I have no idea. But she was like tucked into this dress. So unbelievable. She looked amazing. And but I could tell that she was carrying like a lot of, you know, whatever added weight or something because she was wearing this beautiful, beautiful dress. But her legs from the knees down like went in opposite directions when she's standing there at the top of this partition with stairs coming down and I'm looking and I'm thinking what could this person possibly is this person going to be able to do anything here is this, is this what kind of thing I'm about, about to watch here and she started her song the uh, I am telling you I'm not going song and the crowd which booed the last comedian off the stage is now like literally you could hear a pin drop as she's singing. I mean, they are like mesmerized. It's literally like Jesus is walking on water. This person has the crowd held. I, I, I hadn't seen a crowd held that tightly since I watched old footage of Hitler. You know what I mean? It's like it was unbelievable not to compare it to Hitler. <laughs> so, so and then she starts singing a little bit stronger and now the crowd is getting crazier and crazier and they're just it's unbelievable and then she starts walking down and then it's like and, and you and you and you you're gonna love me the crowd stands up they're going fucking crazy like the comedy club where i'd see certain performers go at uptown and then, you know, she's finishing off and she's doing the end thing where she does that thing where she does that. <gasps> me. And she goes on and she's got the microphone over her head and she's got her head up to the sky and she's mouth is open and she's holding this note for like, I mean, it seems like she's holding this note for like 30 seconds. The crowd is insane i mean they're like it's like i've never seen anything like it and she finishes and it's the standing ovation that is so powerful and so long all paul rodriguez can do is get down on his knees and bow down you know how people do with their arms up and down like that 
and say, oh, oh, over and over again, because that's what the performance was. It was it was a holy shit moment. It was a moment that you realized if you're a lawyer, a doctor, a manager of McDonald's, a comedian, a singer, a magician, it just told you, if you want to get to the next level, make a crowd do that. And if you can make a crowd do that, or you can make your coworkers think that way of you, of something you did on a deal or something you created at your work, you will always rise. You will always get respect. One person will tell 10 people. 10 people will tell 100 people, 100, 1,000, 1,000, 10,000, 10,000, 100,000, and 100,000, a million. And you will never stop working and you will never stop garnering respect. And music in its own way with Jennifer Holliday was for me the symbol of what I needed to do in my life to work hard and to do whatever I could to get to the next level. And if anyone out there hasn't seen the old performance of Jennifer Holliday at the Apollo, go on YouTube, look it up, and it will change your life like it changed my life. And it helped me realize what it took to get to the next level, just like it will help you. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Katz, I am a Cohan. 
For those of you who don't know, that means my mom was a Cohen, my father was a Katz, and now I'm talking to a Christian. Well, Jesus was a Jew, right? So that we're, we're doing good here. All right. So my guest today, very excited. It's always great to have, like, a, you know, just a woman on the couch with charisma and energy and power and force and excitement and, you know, and sex appeal and just the whole thing. It's very, very exciting. Anyway, Tracy Christian, she started her career at PSA, a bi-coastal boutique talent agency with a focus on classically trained character actors like William H. Macy and Joe Montaigne. At PSA, she began to package features for music clients like Busta Rhymes, who she still represents, Nelly and Fat Joe, in addition to supporting the agency's roster of actors. She then moved on to the prestigious Don Buckwald agency. Don, as you know, represents the genius, the motherlode, Mr. Howard Stern. And it was there that she represented future Oscar winners such as Octavia Spencer, Melissa Leo, and Monique. Emmy nominee Elizabeth Moss, music mogul and producer Mona Scott Young. Can you say people who argue in reality shows? That is Mona Scott Young. Super producer Swizz Beats, celebrity hairstylist Ted Gibson, reality star Amorosa, Candy Burris, Roger, Genvir Smith, Paz de la Huerta, and Jamie Hector to the long list of celebrities whose careers she has guided. At Buckwald, she added representing reality show producers and participants to her book of business. In December of 2011, she opened TCA Jed Root with business partner Jed Root, where the agency has put more than 15 shows on the air in a two-year period and has a client list of talented actors working on literally the best Hollywood has to offer, Boardwalk Empire, House of Cards, Game of Thrones, True Detective, and The Strain. It's especially impressive considering the agency represents... Get this, everybody. Get this, CAA. Only 30 clients. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. Today, Tracy just doesn't find opportunities for actors in films and television or sell successful reality programming. She also is involved in developing uh, product lines and other exploitations through various media outlets. Tracy used basketball wife Evelyn Lazada's 3 million-plus fans to secure her shoe line with mega retailer Nordstrom's and Soul Society. YouTube personality Julie G now has a capsule line with Jessie's Girl Cosmetics available in 1,500 Rite Aids across the country. This woman is amazing, has so many different lanes that I, I tell you, it's like a super highway, and I'm excited to interview you i'm excited to meet you and i'm excited to have you here please welcome my guest today tracy christian thank you all right i can't believe you lasted this long i'm surprised <laughs> you didn't fall asleep during all this stuff um thank you so much for being here uh as i like always like to do i like to start off and let's go way way back okay so we're gonna you're gonna take me to where you were living your family life what your life was like and before you ever had a thought of being in show business and then what was the moment or the inspiration or what happened to make you realize I got to be in this business and uh, I got to pursue my dream. Aha. Well, I was born 
a poor black child. <laughs> no, um, I thought you were gonna say a poor sharecropper son. <laughs> yeah, I make a lot of slave jokes. I'll I'll try to be on my best behavior because my parents will listen to this and won't appreciate it. It's really amazing since you're Swedish. I'm Finnish. Oh, you are Finnish. I am Finnish. I did that DNA uh-huh. test that the more you know the Mormons own that uh-huh. thing. So um, for my entire life. Somalian people and Ethiopian people have been coming up to me and they think that I'm like Ethiopian, but got caught in a donut factory or something, right? That I look Ethiopian. So I did the DNA test and I was waiting for something very exotic because supposedly I have exotic features and I am 93% African. 90, like that's so boring. There are people in Africa that are less African than me. And the 7% is Finnish. I want to know, like, when they do the DNA test, so when you, because I'm not a math major, and maybe somebody of our producers here are math majors, but whatever. But so when you're 93 out of 100% African, like, how many... Uh, how many sexual encounters throughout the generations does that have to make before you know what percentage of people were that? Does that mean that 93 people who had sex were, you know, there was a random threesome there somewhere and then there's seven that didn't. And then they got involved at the last right, minute. Like, seven, how does that happen? Seven people who said, I want the white guy. But I don't know. <laughs> like, and, and they even separated in countries. Like, so like, I'm 43% from like the Congo and, and another percent from some other boring place that can't feed its people. I and just can't. I, I don't know why I'm laughing. I just think it's weird. Now that you mentioned that, I just realized something about myself that's I'm going to reveal to you that Uh-oh. is very personal. This is crazy. All through my life in college and whatever, I don't know what it is. Is like black women have always come up to me and always been more uh, aggressive towards me than white women uh, in my in my personal life. And I just I, I what I was, size shoe do you wear, Barry? I I wear a size thirteen to fourteen shoe. There you are, mystery solved. But I am a Jew, so keep in mind uh, the the shoe size has nothing to do with the. Uh, the belt size. Ashkenazi or um, Sephardic. Yes. What's, what are, which are you? I I just, I don't know what what, what area I am. I, I'm going to have to take the DNA test. <laughs> you do. But, but you I do. just, hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll let me know why that I'm Ashkenazi. Thank you. Okay. My, my producer already says I'm Ashkenazi. How do you know that? Uh, usually Ashkenazis are more uh, so, uh, white. White. Right. They're from the north, right? Right, from like Poland, Russia, that right. area. While the Spartans are usually like from like Iraq, like the east. The Arab. Got it. Kicked out of All the- right, see that? It helps to bring guests. Um, yeah, so hopefully by the end of the podcast, you'll let me know why uh, that is or whatever, you know, that I can that I can really understand that because I just, I don't, and I actually was fearful of that kind of encounter with an African-American woman because I, I to be honest with you, I, I never thought I could follow what was before me. You know, I don't want to be in bed with a black woman knowing there's a guy who you could like circumcise a small Jewish boy off his ass. You know, I don't want I don't want to know that I followed that. I just want to be I can't follow that. So I just want to just stay in my lane, which is basically people who don't want me. 
Competition is good, Barry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I'll remember that. I'm sorry to interrupt the no, DNA no. test. We got off on a tangent. I got it like why, wherever I go, the conversation always just goes back to dick size. Like where... Is that where we were? That's where I, I thought was. it was shoe size. I don't know what happened. That's where I was. I was holy mo. Well, it's let me just tell you something. The waist. That that explains why I have never been with uh, some. Because the fact is, if that's on the mind, then I I am in deep shit. Okay, because basically Jews do not pop. There's nothing. There's nothing. You know. You don't. You don't. You don't hear the expression "he's hung like a Hasidic guy." You know what I'm saying? It just—that's not the—he's hung like huh. a Sephardic. That doesn't happen that way. You know what I'm saying? So, so the fact is, is that the reputation precedes us in a way that literally we're competing with the Irish, okay, for what we have going for us, and that's the sad part. And so when I see somebody who has like a gorgeous, gorgeous wife, like one of my producers here, Max. And I look at him and I say to myself, okay, well, he's not Brad Pitt. He's not Quasimodo, but he, you know, clearly it wasn't a lateral move for him. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, yes, that might have something to do with when she pulls back the fup, there's something big there. <laughs> okay. So, so, but, but for me, that's, that's not the way literally like I, I would, I, I would probably groom. So it looked bigger. I, I was going to suggest that. Okay. Just a little trimming, and it looks larger. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I could get an amputation on my legs. It would look larger, too. Stop it, Barry. All right. So, You see how we started in the, we started in the situation where we're going with your history, and we ended up literally talking about, uh, you know, what Dr. Ruth would be talking about on her podcast if she were alive. So well, I'm sorry to hear that. There are penises in my past. There are? And yes, and it has a lot to do with how I find myself in Hollywood. Well, I want to, you know, yeah, I am going to take a little segue here because you just mentioned something fascinating. I told, um, I tell women this all the time we're in the business and I hope that I hope I, you don't come across the couch and strangle me. But if you're a woman in any business, there's a, there's a real, real issue you have to deal with. It's very tough and, and I'll explain it if you'll oblige me. So what happens is, is that when you're in business as a woman, when you're dealing with men in any business, I don't care what you, you're doing all over the world, what kind of business it is. When you talk to a man for the first time who's in business and you walk away, you want them to think this in their mind. Hmm. I, I wonder what that would be like. Because you want to get in their head and know that they're thinking about you not just as a business person, but they're thinking. You don't want that technically. As a woman, you know, when you walk down the street, you know, it's nice to know that people notice you. In business, you want to be known for your mind and what you do in business. But the fact is you can't control the fact that men think the way they do. So that's the most difficult thing because you know in your heart that that's there and you have to keep it away from you, but navigate in a way that they always think that they have a chance, even when they don't have a chance. Whereas if it's reversed and the woman is in the office and she talks to you as a guy and she turns around, I got news for you. One out of a hundred are saying, I wonder what that'd be like. Okay. Girl, women don't give a shit about you, no matter how good you look, no matter what it is. Yeah, maybe, maybe it happens 1%, 5% of the time. So what I'm saying is, is that 
the fact is, is that you're a woman in this business. That's what you have to deal with. And, and, and there's that thing. And there's always the chemistry because you want the chemistry. It's, it's part of life. You have the chemistry, but you, you, you present as a woman the chemistry even when you don't even understand that you're doing it. And that's the toughest part for any woman in business because she's got to navigate and hold the men at bay and just figure out a way where they want her to be around. They feel sexy. They feel more manly when she's around, but it's not going to happen. And you're, if, you're, if you're a woman, it's like it's – I remember Whitney Cummings said this to me one time. It was, it was really, really uh, a very prophetic thing she said and so simple. She said – you know, Barry, it's like in this day and age, it's so weird. It's like, you know, I could be at the comedy store just doing a set and, and there might be a guy I know from the, he's working at the improv and, and you know, you get a text and they'll say, listen, I'm just finishing my set. Um, I know you're over at the comedy store, or the coffee shop there. Um, you want to just uh, get a cup of coffee afterwards. And you're like, you know, and she's, you're sitting down at the table and you're getting your latte and you're talking to the person. And after five minutes, in your mind, as you're talking to the person, as a woman, you're saying to yourself, is this a date? Does, 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 does this guy think this is a date? This, this guy thinks this is a date. What the fuck do I do? How do I, how do I keep him as a friend and keep him as a business associate without insulting him, letting him know, offending him? But also just letting them know that I love hanging out with them, but I don't want to have my ankles in two different zip codes. And so that's what you alluded to when you talked about penises. And I think that's where you were going in a way. But uh, so elaborate more. Okay. I just can't believe that's the opening you gave me. No pun intended. <laughs> I didn't lead you here. I, I swear to you, I've done, this is almost my 50th pod. I've done this almost a year. I've never talked about penises on my pod. Have I? No. Why do I get to be like the cock girl? Why are you talking about penises? Because apparently me? you're the leader of, of, of that area. I'm the cockettes. Like That's the leader right. of the cockettes. Um. I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. But don't you think women are trained, like when we grow up, we learn part of being a woman is how to navigate that. Like, it doesn't seem strange to me at all. How would I know that? I'm a guy without a father. You do, do you have kids? I have two boys. Oh, my oh. mother used to look at my sister and I, and she had these conversations. I'll never forget this one conversation. She said, she's sitting us down like I'm like 13. My sister's like, you know, 17. She's like, Barry, I don't worry about you. I don't worry about you at all. I worry about her. I'm like, Ma, why, what, why, why is that? That's kind of insulting. Why do you worry about me? And why do you worry about her? She's cause, she said, because with you, I only have to worry about one penis. So I don't know anything about what you're talking about right now. So you have to elaborate to our audience. I think our audience will, will, uh, will, will we'll appreciate get a, it. Yeah. No, I think women, we're, when we grow up, we're trained how to make, how to do that dance, how to still be women and feminine. And you want men to desire you. And then you also have to have men respect you, you know, and sometimes fear you a little bit, depending on the business you're in. So how, cause for, you know, 
we're sitting in a room here. We're all guys right now, and and you, and I assure you, if I were to pull, does anyone want to sleep with me? Who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want to sleep with anybody? You know, I think Mitch Patel was a, a comedian. He said, you know, his friend said, "Hey, listen, I." Last night I had really bad sex, and Mitch Patel said, what, what, what the hell is bad sex? Is that when you're having sex and a cinder block comes down and hits you on the head? I mean, what the, what is a guy? What is bad? I mean, who, what's bad? We're used, to, we're, we're used to sitting alone in our room watching you porn. What, what, what is bad? Nobody knows. What how is can it be you bad? Porn? How can it be bad to have. What? Yeah. I mean, what, what could possibly be bad after what we've experienced with our own selves, putting bracelets on and painting our nails? Anyway, so that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so so this has gone way in the toilet. I, like, <laughs> I feel so horrible about this. Am I turning red yet? I think I am. So A little bit red. Yeah. So, But the point is, I, we don't, as guys, we have no idea what you're talking about, about what you're been told how to be so it's like so when you're like when you're in business and you're want to get what you want are you saying that women use their sexuality to get what they want knowing that the guy will want them but that to keep the distance and where i'm getting at here is in business your mom told you to have this kind of chemistry with men how what do you do what does a woman do? What's the technique that she does so she knows that she gets her business done, she gets her respect done, even though she knows the guy is going home thinking of her and figuring out a way, how can I make something happen with her? Wow, I don't think we have enough time for that. <laughs> but, okay, so if the guy is going home and you know, thinking of you in a, in a romantic way, I think you might've been a little too manipulative or you might've been manipulative, which is not the intent. What you want to do is be friendly and feminine and don't shy away from the fact that you're a woman. Use what you have, but not at the point where you, you know, you're being dishonest. But I'm certainly in your career You've been through the modeling profession. You've done mm -hmm. a lot of things, certainly throughout your career. You know, men are like, they just, men are like furniture. You just basically just take them and put them into, they have no concept of what's going on. They're like, in the terms of women, a lot of men are like the great white shark. It's okay, is this yes. a seal here? Okay, yes. now let me go on to the next one. Okay, right. did I get some? Uh, I might have got a little bite here. Let me see if I, and it's just... A lot of men are trained, maybe by their fathers, maybe that's my problem, is that just go. Just go until somebody says yes. Mm. Just push the envelope until somebody says yes. Just make the move so they push you away, just then the next one. So when you're in those situations where a, a man who's in business has no conscience, so it doesn't matter if you've gone too far or not or whatever, it's just, it's there. How do you handle that as a woman in business? Oh, my God. Yeah, now you have me thinking of a few examples. Please, Very this is what this is all about here. I want you to feel safe. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a situational thing. It's, it's intangible. I mean, it's very situational, Barry. Like you, sometimes you're going to touch people. I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like you got to play the man, not the game. 
Play the man, not the game. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. You want to elaborate on that a little more? I don't know how to. I honestly don't. The words, I don't know how to, and Tracy Christian go together like the words Kmart quality. Okay? <laughs> do Kmart still exist? Uh, yes, they oh, do. Okay. I didn't know. I'm telling you, I don't know how to describe, you know, what you do. You just... Because there's a lot of women, women in our audience, they want to know what to do and how to handle those situations. And for somebody who's gone from, I know, feel I'm failing you, Barry. You're I not don't... failing. You could never fail oh, me. Oh, you're very generous. There's no. She just touched me. By the way, does that mean anything? <laughs> it does. And I've <laughs> and I've touched him below the waist several times she has. during this podcast. If I'd have said I had a size nine shoe, no touching. No touching whatsoever. Okay. In fact, I think I would have backed up. All right. Okay. Good. I would have widened the space between us. All right. I feel good about that. All right. We'll just we'll just move on. So we'll move on. So we digressed a long way here. So we're going back. So where you grew up and where your first uh, humble beginnings were, and 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 how you got the inspiration to be in this business. So Barry assumed my beginnings were humble, but well, everybody's beginnings are humble because they're born. Yes. And they have nothing and they zero zero and they're born into a family they have no control over and with siblings that they have no control over and parents they have no control over in a town they have no control over in a school they have no control over. And so to me, it doesn't matter if you grow up like in a mansion or if you grow up in a shack, you're still starting at a point where you have no control over it and you have to get where you need to go. So that's what I meant. Okay, fair enough. Well, my beginnings were very humble. My, I grew up in uh, Newark, New Jersey. And uh, while my parents were finishing school, we lived in the projects. And that, until I was about eight years old. And that was a journey. Now, um, I think for our audience also, I know this sounds odd me asking, but most of us have never been inside the projects. We don't know what mm -hmm. the projects mean. We don't know what the living situation is. We don't know what the uh, socioeconomic dynamic was between people and kids who were hanging out in the streets of the projects. Do you mind talking about how it was for you there? And Absolutely. So it was um, abject poverty. It was a situation where, you know, maybe 50% of the residents, never mind uh, that were unemployed, had never had jobs. People who would live out, you know, their entire adulthood on, um, you know, in the welfare system. So, you know, you'd have elevators. We lived on the 10th floor uh, in a project called Brick Towers. And uh, so often the elevator didn't work because, you know, ghetto kids like myself had broken the elevator. We used to play this game where we would set off the fire alarm in the elevator. And then as the elevator was climbing to the next floor, pry the doors open and jump in between the floors. Wow. Which was, you know, I'm sure my parents don't know I played that game. But, um, you know, urine in the hallways, junkies. I, I joke with my mother, you know, when I was eight years old, I could tell the difference between a junkie and a wino. Because, you know, as a city kid, you got to know one will mug you, one won't. 
but you know, that was Newark, New Jersey. That was the dangerous side. But when you're a kid and you grow up in that environment, it just seems normal. And then my mom was from a fairly affluent family from uh, that lived in Seattle, orig- originally from Louisiana. So in the summers, my parents would ship me off to Seattle, where literally like the first few days I was there, my lungs would always hurt because the air was so clean and I wasn't accustomed to breathing that kind of air. But Newark was great. I loved it. I went to a great school. I, my parents, you know, pulled every dollar they have, and I went to parochial school. And I'm still friends with the girls that I knew in first grade, and I was in the brownies with. And uh, when my parents finished school, my dad went to the library, and he wanted he knew he wanted to move his family out of Newark, and he saw a book called The Most Beautiful City in the World, and it was all about San Francisco. So um, my dad decided that we were going to move to San Francisco. He went first, he packed up his TR6, drove cross country, you know, got a house in San Francisco, got a job and then sent for my mother and I. So then I grew up in San Francisco. Got it. No brothers and sisters? No brothers and sisters, only child. Okay. So when was your first thing that happened that was inspirational for you for the entertainment business? What was the thing that moved you? So, um... I decided I was going to go to SC. My best friend and I picked schools, uh, you know, by the way the guys looked. And when I had gone to visit SC, they had a lot of really cute guys. So I wanted to go there. And, uh, and when I got to Southern California, literally I became a groupie. I went on tour with Metallica, The Cult, GNR. And I had a small... How did you do that? What do you mean? How do you do that? How do you do that? You show up backstage. No, but there's hundreds of girls who show up backstage and try to get backstage. You have to be inventive. Okay. Well, how did you do that? Barry, my parents are going to listen to this. <laughs> I was inventive. I was was demonstrative of my appreciation of the band and I was inventive. And I know you, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to send this to your parents. Okay. So just, (laughs) so just, uh, let's just, cause I, I think this is really important. I hope you don't mind this. So it's like, I say this to like, um, there was, I had a meeting with some interns the other day and, uh, one of the interns, is a uh, an assistant to the CEO of a company here. And um, I said to her, you know, it's like, how do you, how did you get that gig? Mm. Well, I started as a, you know, intern or whatever in the company and I then became an assistant and I did my thing and whatever. I said, but you're so, I don't understand. You're just, I mean, there's so many people were there and yet you were mm. the one who got the gig. How did you get the gig? She's like, I don't know. I just, you know, did my thing and I worked and I, I figured out a way to be, uh, I don't know if she said it was, uh, you know, what you said, but it's like you have to figure out a way to navigate in every situation and know how to do it. Now, I know what you're alluding to is the fact that you used your physical look, your beauty, mm-hmm. your charisma and your sex appeal to get in the door to go on tour with these people. Now, 
whether or not you same within business where you were thinking to yourself, okay, because this is, again, I don't know why I'm going here, but this is really fascinating to me because, again, it was a situation where you said, okay, I want to be a part of this. I want to be backstage. So as a woman, because this is the thing, you know, guys cannot hang out at the backstage thing at Metallica and think, hey, I'm going to get in here. Yeah, maybe, maybe for maybe for the band that you know the Village People, they could stand. <laughs> maybe with Freddie Mercury. Right? Freddie Mercury, <laughs> they could. But the fact is, is that uh, so women only are the only ones that can get backstage who don't know anybody. Okay, there is a concert where there's twenty thousand people there. Presumably, ten thousand women. Presumably, at least seventy five hundred who are young sexy beautiful women okay all of them wanting to get backstage okay so as a woman when you're thinking okay i gotta get backstage i gotta be a part of this you know as a woman that those musicians the only reason they want to bring any woman backstage is is the hope that they're going to have sex with them they're not bringing women backstage. Boy, I, I hope she's an accountant because I need a new accountant. And if she's good with numbers when she comes back here, I might hire her. So the point being is that what I want to ask you is for yourself as a woman, and I know your parents are going to listen to this. Before you decided, you knew in your mind, this is what I love about you. And this is what's going to lead to all this stuff in your business that's amazing that is that you knew in your mind, I am going to get backstage. Nothing will stop me. And not only am I going to get backstage for Metallica, but then I'm going to get backstage for the next band I love and the next band I love. So as you're manipulating the system, do you say to yourself, before you take action... I am not going to sleep with anybody, but I'm going to get to the point in there. And then if anything tries to be happen, I've got in or whatever, or I'm going to navigate to where they'll want me around, but they won't be able to get what they want. Did you know in your mind exactly how far you were going to go in each situation? Absolutely. And you were with friends that had in their mind where they were going to go, but maybe where they were going to go was less or further. Absolutely. Yes. Got it. And and so that's a very, very interesting thing that I, I had no, this is so weird. I had no idea that that was a part of your existence. Oh. And I started this thing in the beginning talking about that world. And it just so happens, ironically... That's how your segue into this business was, figuring out how to navigate all the men out there that wanted to sleep with you and figure out how to keep them in a certain way and keep them going. It's unbelievable. I guess. I guess. It just seemed fun. Just like this business. It just seemed fun. All right. So you you, you, you do that. Then what's next? So, um... So I go on tour with a few bands. I had a small trust fund that I'd managed to exhaust by, you know, following bands around the country. And my parents basically said, you can't move home until you graduate school. So I had to figure out how I was going to fund my education. 
and fund my lifestyle in Los Angeles. And I knew a bunch of girls that were just like me. Like we wanted to hang out at the rainbow and, you know, be able to. The rainbow room here on Sunset. Yes. And jump on a plane. With what bands were playing at the rainbow room at that time who are now huge household bands? Well, names? there's nobody playing at the rainbow, but maybe like at Gazzari's. Remember uh-huh. Gazzari's? Oh, yeah. And the Coconut Teaser and uh, the Roxy and On the Rocks. So, you know, that was the hair metal mm-hmm. kind of scene then. And, you know, I kind of like a little more hardcore. And I, you know, I liked, I grew up loving bands like Black Flag. And obviously I like GNR and love Aerosmith. And probably, you know, the most hair bandy I got was Molly Crew. Got it. And so what what happened from there? So, um, you know, I had to figure out how to make a living. And I had a lot of really gorgeous girlfriends. So I opened up the schlockiest modeling agency that there's ever been. We used to do car shows and boat shows. But what was great about that is, you know, I'd have a bunch of girls at a convention center. So you'd be the like the agent for those girls who'd make like five hundred dollars a day, and exactly. you take fifty dollars or five hundred dollars. I took forty percent. Forty percent. Yes. God bless you. You are a little Jewish. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. Obviously, uh, what is it? Sephardic. Yes. Thank Sephardic. you. Um, that's interesting. I, I and I'm gonna. Maybe God, I am a lost tribe. I hope I, 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 I God, I hope my audience doesn't doesn't kill me for this. But I just, I just have to ask this question because I think the men in the audience want to know this as well. There is like this assumption sometimes that that extraordinarily beautiful women, you know, a guy will often say, "You'll hear this phrase: she's out of my league." Right. Okay. So what happens is a lot of men, they just they just don't approach women who are extraordinarily beautiful because they just feel like, I don't have a fucking shot. Do you feel these extraordinarily beautiful women that you were hanging out with are sometimes lonelier than... Absolutely. They are lonely. I guarantee you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. We're getting somewhere. So you take your shots, guys. Take your shots. All right. So you're doing that agency. You're taking 40% off a car show model. <laughs> you're making me sound like I'm raping them. Well, it's not exactly, you're you're not exactly uh, doing them a financial service. They didn't have any money before they met me. You should Incredible. be happy. God, if I could take 40%, I'd be like... We'd be in a much different position. What happened? Right. What happened to the business? I should... I should start representing these car show models. Okay. All right. So what's what's next? How do you so get we, to the... So we do that. And, you know, I had a lot of other, like, little sketchy Hollywood businesses that, you know, like, I just came from very solid middle class stock. And I came to L.A. and I wanted to be bad. Right. So I was always doing something in nightlife or that was a little edgy or a little dirty because it was fun. But... um I started this modeling agency, and then the reason I got out of that was my grandmother, we held a birthday party for my grandmother, her 100th birthday. I flew back to Jersey, and all of my relatives are standing up, my cousins, and they give a little speech about how much they love my grandmother. And uh, when I stood up, I felt 
like filthy, like this cousin standing up and saying, I'm a dentist and, you know, uh, mother helped me do this, blah, 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 and study. And I, and this person would stand up and say, and I own a chain of laundromats and, you know, I stood up and I was like, I'm one second away from being a madam. I, you know, I rent out beautiful girls (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, so I just knew like, okay, this has kind of run its course. It's not pretty much what I was raised to do. And when I came back to Los Angeles, I was very good friends with a director named John Singleton, who was doing very well. He just gotten an Oscar nomination. And I was talking for his first movie, for his first film, Boys in the Hood. And um, I was talking to John about making some changes in my life. I don't know what you want to what I want to do. And John said, you should either be a madam or an agent. That's he's like, you've got the great greatest mouthpiece ever. So because I knew John, I got a meeting at CAA um, and creative artist agency. For those of you listening, that's the uh, greatest, probably the largest agency in the world. And, you know, those were the Mike Ovitz years. You can actually see the agency from here. Yes. Uh, Those were the Mike Ovitz years, of course. And so who did you meet with over there? I don't even remember. Okay, so they made a really impression on a real impression on you. They did make an impression on me because you know I was really intimidated. I think I had blue hair at the time. Blue hair. Uh, you had blue hair. Well, Tashiana here in our audience has blue hair, and uh, her nickname was Blue growing up. So that's good. Okay, we're in. So, you know, they walked me through the building and whatever, and uh, and I remember looking at CAA, and they didn't even have black people sweeping the floor. <laughs> much less as agents. <laughs> and I knew I knew enough about being an, an agent and knowing agents in town and having met them uh, that it was really an apprenticeship kind of position. You know, you'd get on someone's desk and they had to open up their Rolodex. That's how old I am. I still say Rolodex to you. And I just didn't know if these, you know, 35-year-old Jewish guys with an East Coast education were going to invest in me enough or if I could impress them or, you know, kind of become part of that tribe. CAA with its multi locations and many agents, they had one African American agent, a woman named Donna Shavu. Of course. Who they who were then worked at Brillstein Gray yes, for a little bit. Who they were driving crazy. And I thought, if this is the number one agency in the world and Donna Shavu is there, you know, look what we've done. I didn't want to be Donna Shavu. So I took that offer at CAA and I kind of shopped it around town. You were offered a job as an assistant? As an assistant. Got it. And, uh, and, I, and frankly, and I can admit, I was really intimidated too about, you know, working there. But my, naively, I thought what I would do, because I had always kind of worked for myself, was, look, I'll work someplace a year, maybe two years, learn everything there is to know about this business, and then I'm going to open my own place. So... That was your vision. That was my vision. So I found this little, you know, agency that got respect, got their phone calls returned, had actors that I recognized and they were doing well. And uh, but it was small enough where I thought I could learn everything from negotiating the lease on a copy machine to, you know, selling a television show. And that was PSA. Yeah. What did that stand for? for Peter Strain and Associates. Peter Strain and Associates. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at the time, they represented William H. Macy and... Joe Montaigne, Lindsey Krauss, a lot of people out of the Atlantic Theater Company, Steppenwolf. So what was great was 
you know, every week I was on the phone with like Martin Scorsese's office or like David Mamet because he, you know, he wrote for those specific actors. For those of you who are actors out there and you want to get a book that's going to help you get where you need to go, uh, sometimes difficult to get through, but you have to, it's a requirement and I believe it's called Truth, True or False, David Mamet. So please... Pick up that book. It will change your life as an actor. I'm sorry. Keep going. No. So I ended up working at Peter's place longer than anticipated. But as you know about this business, the more you know, the more you need to know. Mm -hmm. So every day things were changing. And because it was a small agency, I wasn't in a department. You know, I represented actors for film and television and theater and, uh, you know, under... I guess, you know, while representing them, a number of my clients won Tonys and were doing well. But I also had the opportunity to package a few projects and um, I, I could do whatever. I could fulfill my passions there. I wasn't limited to what the department was doing. So how did you run into uh, Busta Rhymes and Nelly and Fat Joe? Like, how did that come about in, in that uh small little company that was representing these thespians. Right. Weird, right? So I, and I don't even listen to hip hop. Um, how did I? I th- One of the things about musicians and maybe comedians is uh, that's an art form that's very will to power, you know? Define will to power. Will to power, meaning you look in the mirror and you de- and you say, this is the kind of person I am or this is what I want to do. And then you go out and do it. And uh, you, just rem- <laughs> you just reminded me of Colin Quinn out of this bit when I first started doing comedy. He's like, who was the band that sang Fight the Power? Oh, yeah. Public Enemy. Yeah, he's like, he's like. You know, Colin Quinn has this has his voice like this. I can't do the impression, but he'd be like, you know, he'd be on stage. He'd be like, yeah, I'm in Long Island. You know, you, you go to a concert. You know, it's a uh, um, bunch uh, of white kids going fight the power. A bunch of white kids in the front row going fight the power, fight the power. You know, somebody should tell those kids, you know, get the fuck out of there. You are the power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but so those guys, like, they didn't feel, and a lot of them were, you know, represented by larger agencies. And I just didn't believe the hype. Like they didn't feel like they didn't feel any sense of protection because CAA was the letterhead. They wanted, you know, someone to go out. If they wanted to have a feature film career, they would sign with whomever was going to get the job done. Right. Like they weren't impressed because they came in and, you know, Eddie Yablons had 150 agents. And Eddie, conf- Eddie Yablons at ICM, a, a, a really a huge, huge part of that company, uh, has represented many great artists, including uh, Chris Rock and uh, Ellen DeGeneres at times, I believe, and many, many more. Really, really uh, great agent. Very successful guy. But the, so, but you know, normally these agencies they sign you across the board, which right. means they expect you to be in every area, and they're going to commission and take money off every area of your life, not forty, ten. <laughs> and if you're a really big artist like Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg probably calls the company and says, "You know what? Um, I'm not paying you, but you can have my name on the door." And you're like, Ooh, "And they okay. say thank you." Okay, thank you. Uh, who knows? I'm just, I don't mean to get inside the sausage factory. I haven't seen the contracts, but I'm just saying that this is, 
you know, I would imagine if you get to a certain level where you're bigger than everything else, you can do whatever the hell you want to do. So, but so these artists were kind of getting big and they could say to CAA, listen, if you don't like it, pound sand, we're going to do this. And, right. and they would take it because they wanted them on the roster. Exactly. And, and so they, so you're helping them to get. Uh, and those guys had my back. Like they liked me and they invested in me and, and I delivered. How did CAA feel about you? Yeah, about that. <laughs> How did they feel about you? Um, I don't, you know, look. None of those guys became Cher or Frank Sinatra, you know, like you think of a crossover artist. So at the end of the day, I don't think they cared, but I ended up getting a job offer from ICM because I'd stolen so many people in their music department and were putting them in films that it made sense to hire me. Did you take the job? Kind of, sort of. I, I did, and it just didn't work out. How I'm, long were you there? Not even long enough to get a parking space. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. And and you were uh and you were working directly with uh like was it you were working with Eddie or you were working with different people? Phil Casey. Phil Casey. Yeah. Hired me to do crossover. Got it. And uh yeah. Interesting. You know, it's weird, you know, hearing somebody saying I was hired to do crossover. You know, where else do you hear that? You know, you know, again, you don't have some white dude going to the agent and say, hey, we're hiring you to do crossover. It's just, it's the weirdest thing. I've heard stories, Tracy, where actually an agency wanted to sign an African-American client. They had no African-American agents. And they'd literally say the night before to like an assistant yes. or somebody who worked in the mailroom or a custodian or, or even a friend or whatever, okay, show up in a nice suit, you're going to be in this meeting, and you're going to be a part of the team. Have you heard of that happening? I know those people. <laughs> what are you talking about? So those are some of my friends, yes. <laughs> and you booked them for $500 to be in the meeting, and you took 40%. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, so how do you get to Don Buckwald and Associates? So um, I needed to kind of make a change, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, Don Buckwald came and they made me a very, very nice offer. Basically, you know, Julia gave me an office next. Julia's Don's uh, is is Don's uh, daughter, and she runs the L.A. office. Julia is a, an amazing woman. They're they're a fascinating group. You know, Don Buckwald. Uh, if you don't mind me saying, it, it's it's like an anomaly. It just it's it's one of the things for myself as a manager, and as as many of you know, that's well documented. You know, I've had my my head handed to me many times in this business by by artists uh, who I who I've worked with. And Don Buckwald is a guy who's represented Howard Stern from the very beginning. And I can guarantee you that every agency in the world has tried to steal away Howard Stern. I can guarantee you that every big agency in the world has said to Howard, listen, come over to us. Uh, we'll cut the commission in half. Come over. I guarantee you'll be met. Howard, listen, the first year you don't have to pay a commission. Mm -hmm. Just come over. And he's always been loyal to Don Buckwald and and called him a super agent even before anybody knew what a super agent was. And Don has delivered in every way doing deals that are, if not as good, bigger than any single agency could do. The largest deal in Hollywood history. The largest deal in Hollywood history. 
Uh, and it's just an amazing thing because you think it's sort of like uh, Jack Nicholson with Sandy Bressler. With Sandy Bressler uh, is his agent. He's been his agent for forty-five years. It's a it's an agency that maybe if they have thirty clients, it's a miracle. Um, and and Jack Nicholson stayed and and to this day has gotten every part he needed to get, mm-hmm. gotten every bit of money he wanted to get. And made millions of dollars. And and that's always, to me, as a manager, one of the things I've always aspired to have that kind of career when you can make an artist feel that wonderful and know that you can make the marriage last that long. It's just a it's just an unbelievable thing. And that agency is built on that. And and but Howard never I don't listen to every Howard Stern radio show, but in my times listening to him, and I've listened to Howard Stern probably over 10,000 hours of my life, I've never once heard him say, because of me, Don has the agency. Because of me, they have all those people in there. He'll shit on Baba Booey and every single person (laughs) in the world in his circle, except for Robin. I was going to say, except for Robin. And But he treats Don like that's the way it is. This is the man, and I owe everything to him at, with humility. And the fact is, is that Don, there wouldn't, in my opinion, there wouldn't be the nice offices in New York, the nice offices in L.A., and all the agents without those Howard Stern deals. But the fact is, is that in most agents, in the privacy of their own boardrooms, say, listen, know this 20% of the client's money is going to pay for the other 80% of what's happening here. That's normally what happens. So take me through your time at Don Buckwald and how you got involved with people like, you know, Octavia Spencer, the great Melissa Leo and the controversial Monique. Is Mo controversial? I don't know. When you go to the Academy Awards and you're doing the press conference, hairy legs or not, and they start asking you questions and you say, "Uh, my husband will answer those questions for you. Sydney. That's that's not not good. Yeah. When you win an Academy Award and you are not working in significant acting jobs five years later, not good. Well, but that was her choice. It wasn't. I'm telling Tracy. you, Barry. Barry. Tracy. She, Barry. She had offers. Mo. Do you know Mo? Very well. Okay. So you know she dropped out, and you know she why she dropped out and moved to Atlanta. Do I know why? With Sydney. Do I know why? No, I don't know why. Oh, okay. Do you know why? I do. That's that's her story to tell. Okay. The fact is, well, this is what I've known about Monique, and since you represented her, we're going to go a place that uh, you might not want to go, so you don't have to answer these questions. But on the graph of over here at zero is the most wonderful, sweet, no drama, never raised their voice, never was disrespectful, the person with the most humility in the world is zero over here. And number 100 is uh, the person who has zero humility, tremendous drama, creates problems everywhere they go, 
Uh, everybody thinks they're difficult to be with. That's 100. Zero is that. Where is she on the scale? A 10. You're high. Okay? I'm not, I just hired her last year for something. No drama, nothing. And investigating, like, can we bring her back? Okay. Well, the fact is, is that that's not, if you were to ask a hundred people in the business, that is not what they would tell you. And so I'm going to go with what a hundred people tell. Now, listen, if you ask a hundred people about me, they would tell you some horrible things about me. And most of them would probably be, be true. But, uh, but the fact is, is that the whole thing is what you present to the, to the business and how you present yourself. And how you do things and how you treat people and how, how it is. And, and, and you have to be the best representation of yourself. And I told a story here once when I was on Oprah with Dane Cook. And the producers come into that room and they brief you. Mm-hmm. They, it's like a military operation. Mm-hmm. Don't do plugs. Don't mention any products. Don't talk about anything you're doing. Mm-hmm. Oprah will drive the conversation. She gets out there, about to go to commercial. Well, we'll be right back. Hold on, Oprah. Reaches into her boob, pulls out a perfume. This is my new perfume. I, lo- I want to put my kids through college. Tsst, 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 tsst. This is it, Oprah. I guess it's my only chance. I'm not going to have this chance to make money anymore. Here. Tsst, tsst, tsst. So you don't do shit like that if... You're trying to get to the next place with people and garner people's trust and faith. This is the good part about Monique that I've always loved. For me, always been so wonderful to me. Mm -hmm. Never raised her voice to me. Always been loving to me. Her performances in Precious some of the most inspiring performances I'll ever see in my life. I mean, I just, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be more proud of somebody who was a comedian mm-hmm. who went with the talent and the Good lane of acting of that. I mean, I just, everything about it, just, I'm actually a little emotional, a little speechless because I, I, it's everything. It's like what I talked about with Jennifer Holliday. What Monique did in Precious was what Jennifer Holliday did at the Apollo. And so that stands alone and no one can take that away from her. But if you are an artist out there, what can take things away from you is how you are off the camera. When you're on a set, if you ever are on a set, if you're an actor listening to this, you treat the person at the craft service table with the raw almonds as nice as you treat the director. You treat everybody like you would want to be treated. And you will rise. But if the one time you throw a phone at somebody like Russell Crowe, doesn't matter how many Academy Awards he wins, that's the guy who threw the phone at his assistant. You know, Alec Baldwin is a fucking genius, Mm -hmm. an amazing actor. They'll always talk about the phone calls. Mel Gibson is like 
at the highest level of the world of this business, Academy Award winner, they'll always talk about the anti-Semitic comment or they'll always talk about the situation that happened where he hit the girl with the kid and the phone calls. In any profession you're in, you have to pretend that Mother Teresa and your parents are standing next to you and you're the only one that can see them. Except when Barry Katz wants you to talk about cock on his podcast. I never mentioned the C word. Uh, I'm going to have to see what human resources after this. Uh, this, is, this is bad. And do you know, so, now I yeah. keep looking down. At what? Oh, you look down here. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry you're looking down. You know, it's, I've learned something about women, though. So what you're saying is women actually look. Because the weird thing is when women are wearing pants and they're with a guy, no guy ever looks down right there when they're wearing pants, uh, knowing that that's where you want to end up, uh, where he wants to end up, you know, never when they're wearing pants, but women, when guys are wearing pants, they always look. And the thing is, I think men design pants. You know why? Because what happens when you sit down and you're wearing any pair of pants all through your life, you learn this, your first pair of pants, you're like, like, you know, eight years old or nine years old, you sit down under your desk and you're, you know, you're sitting there and that desk part is coming, but you can see down and your pants do this thing where they pop up and they, they're in the shape of an actual, you know, unit. But it's not, you know, you could take your hand there and do whatever. It's not there. But it, it looks like it's there. Mm. And so I think pants were designed by men knowing that that happens. And, and, and women's pants clearly were not designed by men, so I'm 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 sorry that you have to look at my uh, that down there. There's I'm sorry I'm, I you know to be so disappointing, but we'll we'll move to the next part. But here. when I said that, do you know everyone in the room looked at your crotch? My crotch, yes, and they they're going to be looking at it all day. Now I kind of can't stop. All right, don't and he's covering it up. I'm learning something today. I don't know what I'm learning, but uh, I, I hopefully this I'll take this with me today, and I'll I'll be better when it comes to these 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 dinners that I'm having, and and I'll learn to to sit in a place where there's not a table covering me, and I'll wear the right pants, and uh, and I, I I hopefully I won't have to, uh, to you know I'll, I'll I'll have to get some kind of prescription that will help me. Uh, not disappoint somebody, and then we'll be good. So this is uh, this is good. Okay, so take me <laughs> to the next level of how you got into these reality stars and representing people like Mona Scott Young, who uh, is doing all these shows about uh, divas fighting each other and these crazy situations. Okay, we hardly have any fights on our shows. There's no fights. I, we hardly I, no. There are fights. We Where hardly are you? Have what any, reality are you living we in? Hardly you have represent any, an Amarosa, okay? Right. Who's a very lovely person? I'm sure she's very lovely, but on camera, right? She gives great television. Not lovely. No. Great I don't, television. I don't disagree with you. Uh, no, Mona was a friend forever because Mona was a very, very successful music manager. She co-owned a company called Violator. And who did she represent? 50 Cent, Buster Arms, Mariah Carey, Missy Elliott, 
pretty much anybody. So Lello bunch, Cool J. So, so a bunch of hacks. Is right, what a you're bunch saying. of hacks. Okay, just check. Can't sell a record, and uh, and I worked with the majority of the Violator uh, artists. So when Mona left Violator and started Mona Me Entertainment, I became her agent. And we, you know, we had a five-year plan of what Mona wanted to do and the world she wanted to conquer. And uh, the first step was reality. So I think we're, we're well on our way. How many shows does Mona have on the air right now? Seven. Seven shows. Seven shows. We nearly got you a four. You want to mention those shows? Sure. Um, Not to say you can remember them all. because I, I know. Remember, I don't, right? I can't remember seven of anything, but mention some of them. Love and Hip Hop. Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, Love and Hip Hop Hollywood, uh, Taking Atlanta on Bravo, The Gossip Game, um, Hot Night. This is Hot Ninety Seven. Um, yeah, I'm, now I'm starting to. That's okay. That's cool. Kay Michelle. And so, uh, great stuff happening there, and then you decide to uh, leave uh, Don Buckwald or that, that ends. How does that end? What happens? Well, Buckwald went through a merger. They merged with a company called, who I'm not even going to mention. But anyway, you know. Can uh, I mention it? Why even give them the, the air? Why, why? Okay. All right. Sorry. So anyway, Buckwald went through a merger and <laughs> and um, you know, I've been pretty spoiled at Buckwald. I had a very... I am going to say something. I know. He can't resist. He can't resist. For those of you listening to the... I listened to everyone else's podcast. They were funny, informative, wry, and listen to my damn podcast. It's all about cock and then, <laughs> like, two guys. I'm trying to take it in a different direction here. Okay, go ahead. And he's blushing. And, go ahead. Go ahead. This is awful. Now his hands are in his pockets, too. I want to let everybody know. Oh, Jesus Christ. This is awful. <laughs> this is so awful. <laughs> this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. <laughs> I've never had this happen to me before, but I'm glad it's happening. And, to me. Uh, to you. To me. You brought this out of me. It's incredible. I've, I've learned what I need out of life. So what, this is the thing with Buckle Up Wall that you didn't understand. What I never understood is like even great companies and great men and great leaders of men and women make decisions that don't make any sense. And one of the things that Don did was he had his own company with his daughter, who was a you know partner in the company. And he decided to merge his company with this company called Fortitude, which was with two agents, uh, Michael McConnell and Ben Press. Ben Press, thank you. Michael McConnell and Ben Press. And they were in the film side of the business and they represented some people. But it wasn't like they were representing like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt. They were representing people who were, you know, they were Work a day actors. Yeah, they weren't horrible actors. They weren't but they weren't like huge, monstrous, multi-million dollar actors. And somehow through their meetings with Don Buckwald Somehow, and Julie, they convinced them that not only should they bring them in to the company and make them partners, but they should change their name to Buckwald Fortitude after 30 fucking years of being Don Buckwald. Years. 35 years. So what I'm saying is even sometimes 
mistakes are made and things don't work the way you want them to and you have a vision and no matter how many people are telling you differently or whatever, you have to experience it for yourself and things can fail, but it doesn't matter because you can come back. A good example in television late night would be Jay Leno. You know, he has his talk show. The network convinces him, go on at 10 o'clock. We'll give you it five days a week. We'll pay you this. And you're like, well, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, okay. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You get out of it and you go back and being great again. And people forget. It's not like this is the thing. When I mentioned about Monique, if you go back if you do something that people look at and they're not really thrilled with in the public eye, if you go back and win another Academy Award or do great work, it'll be forgotten. You know, Eddie Murphy was on the side of a road with somebody one time, Divine whatever name, Brown. Divine Brown, yeah. yeah. Who remembers that? Who cares? Because the guy's made a billions of dollars making movies. not like he disappeared. Dustin Diamond... Does a thing with porn. People always remember him for that because he hasn't done anything since Say But I mean, they didn't remember Dustin Diamond. But here, but here's the difference about Mon- Monique too. I don't think my parents don't know anything negative about Mo. I think the general public, you know, knows her from her long-running TV series and then Precious and a few films, and they've never had a negative experience. I with tell her. you one thing. No matter what I did, if I were working on a project and I wanted to have the greatest actor in that lane, actress in that lane doing something, she would be my first call. And I wouldn't even care if she was nice to me throughout the whole process like she always is or if she treated me like crap the whole time, which she's never done. I don't care because that performance, people watching all over the world don't know what I've been through. All they know is what they see, and that's all they care about. And so that's what I'm looking for from her again, and I know we'll find it. And it's it. in her, and she just... Because uh... I really believe in her as an actress. I think she's uh, she's in, uh, there's just amazing. So, she's doing the new D. Reese project for HBO. So There you go. Which is a fabulous role for her. All right, so we're going to wrap up here a little bit. Tell, about, tell, tell me about your... Uh... Cock chat. <laughs> What am I telling you about now? Tell me about your new venture with Jed Root and how that's working and what's going on. And and, uh, before we talk about our final stuff, how did that come about? Uh, So anyway, so you talked about the merger at Buckwald, even though I didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'd been (laughs) really spoiled there and able to just represent pretty much who I wanted the way I wanted. And uh, as you can see. People were doing well. And when, um, you know, the new administration came in, I, for the first time in my career, really started to lose clients and important clients. So, you know, look, you, you said it very well. Like, even the smartest people make mistakes. But I didn't know that I could trust my future, my career, to that situation. So uh, I actually, I thought I'd just go out and get another job. I was talking to a client and friend named Jed Root about leaving. I had some other offers. And Jed Root's claim to fame was that he was a, 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 in the makeup world and representing the most, the biggest makeup uh, people in the business who right, worked in the all fashion. in the fashion world. He's a huge person in the fashion space. And um, Jed said, well, why don't you just open an agency? And I was like, oh, people, Jed, people don't 
just open an agency. It costs millions of dollars. And he's like, put together a budget. And I did. And he goes, oh, yeah, I got that here. And wrote me a check and I opened my agency. Incredible. Incredible. That's just, I mean, I always say on this podcast, if you want to know how valuable money is, try borrowing some. Right. Look, I I love Jed. I, there's... I thought I think I'm a good agent. I'm a nice person, trustworthy, all of that. But to have a client be the person to bankroll you says something to me. And, you know, we started the agency with just myself and an assistant and seven clients. We sold six shows in six months. And, you know, then I think added on in a very smart way. And, you know, we had a client win an Oscar last year and we're doing the work like everyone else. And your client that won an Oscar was? Sean Christensen. That's right. Sean Christensen. And that must have been amazing to be in like your first few years of business and have that happen. Yeah, it was my second year of business. And actually, Octavia Spencer had won an Oscar the year before, and she had been at Buckwald when we put her in the help. So... This year we didn't have anybody win, but we had a few films in Cannes. It's a pale, <laughs> pale comparison, but... It's hard to get back. <laughs> it's hard to get back there. It is, but it's been fun. It's been a lot of work, but a lot of fun. Great. All right. So let me ask you about a few things, and then we're going to get you out of here. So I'm going to mention some names of some people that have been in your life, and I'd like you to mention something that comes to mind. Anything could be a word, a sentence, something that's just the first thing that comes to mind about the person. This is like a test. I'm failing. Okay. Melissa Leo. Talented. Amona Scott Young. You're just going to mention clients? Come on. <laughs> Empire. Don Buckwald. Genius. Jed Root. Genius. House of Cards. Uh, addicting. Busta Rhymes. <laughs> Plus the bus. Uh, huge. Monique. Precious. Fantastic. All right. So... Tell me one story that's your holy shit moment that would be the highlight chapter of your book, something crazy that nobody knows. You know, this is your first podcast you've ever done. We won't tell your parents. Tell me one story that no one would fucking believe throughout all the craziness that you've been through in your life. You know, white artists, black artists, rock and roll concerts, uh, negotiating reality deals, television shows. One thing that people would do is blow them away. Okay, so um, a girlfriend of mine was involved in uh, managing. I, I'm trying to. Should I? Okay, I, I won't. I, I'm going to bury the lead a little bit. I call my friend. Do you know a guy named Bradley Glenn? He's a lit agent in town. I don't know Bradley. Okay, so I call my friend Bradley Glenn, who's this very good-looking, painfully well-dressed 
man. And I said, um, I'm going to be by your house in 30 minutes, pick you up. You've got to come with me. And he said, um, I have someone waiting in my bed for me. I'm not going anywhere. And I said, leave the person there where I'm taking you is more important. And I convinced him to get in the car with me. And we drove up through the Hollywood Hills and with Bradley complaining the entire time that wherever I was taking him was had to be better than sex. And uh, then we got in a shuttle bus and drove higher up through the hills. And then we got out of the shuttle bus and walked into what seemed to be an empty McMansion. 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 What's a McMansion? A McMansion. McMansion, like those kind Besides of... Besides a mansion, what's a mansion and what's a McMansion? <laughs> a McMansion is these kind of preformed, you know, you know, I don't know, not very much character. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we go into this McMansion where everything is painted purple and gold. And Bradley is taking the decor apart. And uh, and says, are we at the the home of the Lakers? <laughs> what have you done? I'm never going to forgive. I'll never talk to you again. And we walk into an area that kind of looks like a grand ballroom. And in the middle of the floor is a giant purple pea. And Bradley turns around to me and he said, what are we at Prince's house? And down the stairs walks his royal badness himself with his hair tied up in a do-rag and a dressing gown like Norma Desmond. (laughs) And he comes down the stairs and he looks at us and he said, oh, you're early. Make yourself at home in the kitchen. I'll be ready in about an hour. (laughs) And walks away. And Bradley says, what the fuck? (laughs) He took me to Prince's house. Well, Prince was having a dinner party for, you know, a handful of friends. And, uh, you know, we spent the night eating with Prince. And then he had like a little disco in his house where musicians could just sit in. Prince, you know, Prince plays every instrument known to man. And you'd say, James Brown, the big payback. And then Prince would sit in and play drums and sing the song, and anybody else in the room that knew how to play that other instrument could sit there and play with Prince, and a bunch of you know my friends and other people who were at the dinner party danced all night and played with Prince and gave him requests. Wow. So those little, most of the time in Hollywood, my day is filled with paperwork and driving to sets and, you know, logistics. But those little moments, you think to yourself, yeah, what I do is pretty cool. Yes, it is. Tell me your biggest disappointment professionally. Mm. Okay, so this is just as an agent being very, very naked. Okay. It's losing a client. It's losing... when I saw, like I said, I, I've been very spoiled in my career. I haven't had a lot of people leave me and I've largely just represented people because I got a hard on for them. I was passionate. About, it all comes full circle. <laughs> you know, I never represented someone because they were Miss Puerto Rico or they were already on a series or whatever. I'm definitely a person led by passion. And there was one actor 
I remember seeing him on a television show. He didn't even have any lines and just his presence turned me on. And uh, here I am in L.A. He was in New York. I called everyone I knew in, in New York, found out who he was, flew him out, signed him. And together we did some extraordinary work. And uh, the day he left me was devastating. Take me through that day. What happened? Well, you know, you have a an inkling. He wanted me to move to a larger agency and uh so he gave you a warning he gave me a warning which is fair you kind of know that it's coming you have a contract you know you're trying to balance between you know not getting sued and finding greener pastures and you know then one day he called me and it was final and it's humiliating how did you handle that call while it was happening um It's a good question. I just, um, mm, you know, close my door and you cry <laughs> away from the assistant and you feel like nothing will ever be the same. No one will ever return your phone calls. All of that, all of that emotion. And, you know, your boyfriend doesn't understand it because it's just, but what we do is not simply transactional. It's emotional. And actors don't understand for every no that they get, I get it 50 times more, you know, but, um, that was so difficult. But what it did for me was once that actor left me and I realized I could still get, you know, Nicholas Reffin on the phone. I could still, you know, have a lunch with Steven Soderbergh that people were actually in business with me, not just who I represent but it taught me of my own value. And that actor was? Never tell. <laughs> you never tell? I won't tell. Okay. Okay, it was, no. I mean, I've been fired so many times. You want me to mention all the people I got fired by? I know. It's okay. It's uh, public knowledge. I know. Well, if people figure it out, all good. <laughs> All right. He you, knows who he is. You're really going to leave him hanging like that, the whole broke audience. my heart. going to leave all the, the people hanging like that. Convince me, Barry. Convince you what? Convince me to give the name up. Uh, because it will inspire the two million people that listen to this that want to know what it takes to move past something so devastating. Because they don't know if you're talking about somebody who is Amorosa or if it's somebody who's an Academy Award winning actor who's doing great movies. And if you know that somebody's figured out a way to take that kind of a hit and move forward, it's inspirational. But if they don't know, how are they going to know that it's inspirational? Okay. It was Michael Kenneth Williams. Got it. So there you go. And you really are amazing with how you come through with that because your presence is like it doesn't even make any difference so that's great tell me your proudest moment professionally um besides this interview <laughs> uh it was you know when we opened the doors to the agency uh i have polished concrete floors and i hope you come by my office sometime only if i'm invited and I wear concrete pants. <laughs> well, get, I'll give you something very blousing. 
Okay. To hide your gifts. Thank you. So that you, you know. Or my lack of. Uh, but no, when I inscribed the date that we started uh, TCA in the concrete, that was a great moment. Um, you know, I don't know. I've had, I've had so many. I've had so many. Uh, but that was the one that I think of now. And lastly, tell me what advice you have for the young artist who's starting out in the projects and not knowing where they're going to go to get to the next level, uh, to be somebody like Busta Rhymes or Fat Joe or... Do you even know who Fat Joe is? Yes. Oh, all right. you, have a, you, you don't know. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm not a big music fan, but I have people who help me with these researches here. Do you guys play tracks for him before I come in? Yeah, yeah. They were playing Buster Rhymes tracks before he came in. You, can I tell you how smart Arnold Copelson is? Sure. Busta and I took a meeting over there, and uh, their office, it's one of those when you come up in the elevator and the elevator door opens out into the office. Mm -hmm. And we get in the elevator, and the elevator music was Busta Rhymes. There you go. So he... So we, uh, the doors open and there's, you know, the Godzilla pictures and all the stuff and Busta walks in and he just looks at the receptionist and he goes, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So what advice do you have to the young artist to get to that level? And what advice do you have for the young executive or the person starting who wants to be an executive and make their mark like you in the business? Uh, what would you have to say? So, um, you know, on the business side, I would say uh, never be afraid to ask questions, you know, um, work hard, even more work hard than work smart. You'll figure out how to work smart later, but don't be afraid to do anything and everything, you know, really invest in your craft and, uh, and don't be afraid to be collaborative. You know, having most of my career has been spent at smaller places and I have never been afraid to pick up the phone and call anyone and everyone. Um, and, and I think that's been a huge strength. That's why I have the relationships that I do. Don't be afraid to fail. You know, don't let fear guide your career or your life. Um, and that feelings aren't facts. Wow. This has been really wonderful. I will tell you honestly, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, my friend Lee Jacobs, who I love, recommended that I meet with you and I do this podcast with you. I had no expectations at all. And you exceeded all my expectations. You blew me away. You brought something to the podcast that nobody else has ever brought before, which is uh, an air of sensuality and sexuality mixed with business power. And uh, I really, really loved it. And I, I hope our audience loved it as much as I did. Thank well, you. Thank you, Barry. Is uh, someone going to applaud now? <laughs> Thank you. All right. This has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.